Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. Gas prices are, are still high. Inflation is very high. Were you aware of any agreement or understanding that was secured from that trip to increase oil production? No, that's not a detail that I got in any readout of that trip. But let's be clear. Um, gas prices here in Delaware have come down for several weeks now. Overall, they've been coming down for months. Um, but inflation and prices generally um, are still too high. The difference between, for example, Fetterman and Oz or the Democratic Party and Republican Party nationally um, is that we have taken strong actions and have clear plans for how to address the costs of living. No, you don't, Senator Coons. That's a lie. Why do you keep saying it? Why do you keep saying it as if somehow we're going to believe it? You're the party that has engaged the spending, the American uh, rescue plan, as you call it, $1.9 trillion. You keep touting it, you keep cheering it, exacerbator of inflation, and then you added the so-called Inflation Reduction Act, which everybody knows is a lie, doesn't reduce inflation at all. Yet you keep talking about being the people who are taking care of families at the kitchen table. We know that's not true. We'd appreciate it if you'd stop saying it. What we would also appreciate is a recognition that what is bad now is going to be worse tomorrow. Tony Katz. Tony Katz today. What is going on, my dear people? 833-GOT-TONY-833-468-8669. That's the number. And, uh, man, uh, for those of you who will be there tomorrow night for a night with WIBC presented by Relay Indiana, I am ready. I think it's going to be good. I think it's going to be interesting. We're going to go a little bit behind the curtain. That's that's my plan. So if you're there, I look forward to seeing you at a night with WIBC presented by Relay Indiana. It's going to be a good time had uh, by all. I'm bringing my own bourbon, people. Yeah, at this stage of the game, you just have to. Let me give you a one-two punch here from the IBJ, Indianapolis Business Journal. You've seen pictures. Here's the one-two punch. Microsoft profit down 14% as Windows hurt by weak PC sales. Well, yeah, inflation's going up, and while... Certainly, you can't deny the fact that personal computing is unbelievably affordable. There comes a moment where you're like, eh, maybe not. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll let this computer last another six months, another year, another year and a half, whatever the case may be. You know, may, you know maybe that's, maybe that's the, the, the right thing to do. I'll, I'll hold on. Uh, they reported over there at Microsoft a quarterly profit of $17.6 billion. It's still uh, pretty good. Slightly beat Wall Street expectations, but they also reported a 14% drop in profit for the July to September quarter, comparing it to the same time last year. People bought what they bought, and they didn't feel the need to buy another thing. We're seeing this in, wait, where's where's the story? Hold on a second, I have the story. Here, here it is. We're seeing this in relationship to uh, iPhone 14. Apple's cut production on the 14 because of weak demand. Weak demand can be translated out to it works. And the last thing I want to do is replace it right now. The last thing I want to do is spend another $1,000 right now. So they've cut back production on the 14 plus, increasing the output of the more expensive IT, I, more expensive iPhone 14 Pro. Dear Lord, that was difficult. 
because the mid-range model is not getting it. People are going to go for the big stuff or they're not interested, which is also very, very interesting. But they're not also selling as, as much overall, at least from the initial reporting that I see. And it makes sense. People are holding on. They're holding on to cash. Which brings us to the part two story from the IBJ, IBJ.com, via Bloomberg News. Inflation starts to drag on consumers powering U.S. economy. That's right. Um, I'm going to use as an example cigars. And you may have heard me talk about this before. This is very, very real. You got to think of, of, of what I do on a daily basis. I talk, I study, I write, I smoke cigars. It's what I do. I'm, I'm researching constantly. I'm engaging constantly. It's, 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 it's my gig. And honestly, in, in a world of gigs, it's an awesome gig. I'm just saying, I am saying you're not hearing me complain about uh, the gig. Um, I cannot describe to you how much and how often on my cigar and bourbon show, Eat, Drink, Smoke, eatdrinksmokeshow.com, we have been discussing the rising prices are coming. That you can't find boxes to pack the cigars in, the cellophane to put the individual cigars in uh, that help with uh, strength, or, or I should say, you know, uh, breaking of, of wrappers and certain levels of, of moisture and humidity, uh, the glue that goes on uh, to the wrappers, the rollers in general, the people who actually roll the cigars. These things are coming. We've been talking about these things for a year. Now they're here. The price increases going on with cigars right now, very real. It's why you're going to be hearing me talk about uh, how we need to cap the cigar tax in the state of Indiana. The uh, cigar taxes, uh, tobacco taxes, 24%. So I'm not talking about cigarettes, totally different world. Cigars are not cigarettes. I'm talking about cigars. So if it's a $10 cigar, it's a $2.40 tax. Places like Michigan, Minnesota, and others have said, look, it's, it's a, we have a tax, but we cap it at 50 cents. At 50 cents, you keep the, the price lower. You actually generate more revenue for the state. That's what Michigan has proved. And now you've got these business owners, because they're all small business owners, the actual shops that you go into, they're able to engage more advertising, hire more people, et cetera. It's better for the economy if you engage this, this cap. But the prices are going up. Inflation has hit everything. The prices are going up. And when I hear guys who are of means say, I can't afford this anymore. I can't afford to do that anymore. The inflation is here and is indeed affecting the consumer. Just as this story from Bloomberg is discussing. Just as we see from the, the, the Microsoft sales and from Apple sales, everybody's holding on. Getting ready for a very, very bad 2023. This administration, I don't even think they're willing to talk about it. No, I know they're not willing to talk about it. Something else they won't talk about? The border. Griff Jenkins from Fox News uh, join me to break it down. He is up next. Keep it right here. This is Tony Katz Today. So as this election goes, of course the subject is inflation. Of course the, the subject is how you afford the basic goods. There's going to be a conversation about how you're going to heat your homes 
in the winter. That's certainly going to be a conversation for the northeastern parts of the United States where they're already discussing heating oil rationing. But one of the big stories that continues to be a story is this border and what's been happening, the numbers of people crossing the border and how it is that somehow after these two years of Joe Biden in office, not only has it gotten worse, but any opportunity or any discussion, any moment where it's brought up is met with radical resistance to something we know is an issue. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today, it's good to be with you. Griff Jenkins joins us right now from Fox News. You catch him all over the place, you catch him on weekends, and he is doing the yeoman's work along with Bill Malugan (laughs) about what's going on on the border, except Griff was doing it before it was fashionable. Your, Your latest tweet from the other day discusses the fact that Border Patrol had over 227,000 migrant encounters for the month of September, bringing the fiscal year, the fiscal year is October to September for the federal government, to 2.378 million people, 98 of those people on the terrorist watch list, and it got dumped out in terms of being newsworthy on a Friday night. So which part of this, Griff, is more shocking, the numbers or the fact that the administration is desperately trying to hide it from the American people by taking it out with the trash at Friday at 11 p.m.? Hey, Tony, it is always great to be with you and your listeners in Indy, and you just put your finger on it. What's most important is the fact that no one wants to talk about it. It's literally as if you were standing next to a burning skyscraper, and the administration says, nah, don't look at it. It's not burning. Never mind. Move on. Look at something else. I mean, this is, and and you're right. You're kind in that intro. I have been covering this border since at least 2010. I remember back going out to Arizona when the then governor, Jan Brewer, was trying to pass uh, SB 1070 to deputize her local law enforcement because they were seeing large numbers. But when I went down to Nogales and the Arizona border then, Tony, in 2010, some 12 years ago, the Border Patrol people would say, look at this group. There's 35 migrants in it. My God, I just spent 17 days in October down in the border in Eagle Pass, Texas, and the average group size was 150 to 200 at a time every day. I even went into Mexico to Piedras Negras across from Eagle Pass and covered the smugglers as they sent them across the river into the U.S. at free will. The smugglers paid no attention. They could care less I was sitting there filming them because they're doing it all day long. It's an ATM machine for the cartels and the smugglers. And I asked the smuggler specifically, is the border open or closed? He said, abierta, meaning open. But you point out that 2,300,000 number that the administration dumped almost at midnight on a Friday night when, by the way, DHS Secretary Alejandro Marcus, where was he at that moment? In Japan at a cybersecurity conference. You add to it the first year of the Biden administration when there was an unprecedented 1.7 million migrant encounters, numbers they had never seen on the border, and you're talking about more than 4 million migrant encounters. If that's not the definition of an open border and a border crisis, I don't know what is, but the number that really matters that many, like the former Border Patrol chief, Rodney Scott, who was essentially pushed out when the Biden administration came in, says is a, this is a national security issue. And the reason why we should be talking about it, not just on this radio show or on Fox News, but on every network and on the front page of every newspaper, is that there were a absolutely record-smashing, unprecedented, stunning right. number of 98 
encounters that hit the terrorist screening database in fiscal year 2022. There were 20 alone in September. These are individuals that matched uh, an identification on the FBI's terror watch list when they were apprehended coming across our border. Now, if you look back at fiscal year 2021, there were only 15 all year long. The year before fiscal year 2020, there were only three. In fiscal year 2019, Tony, there were zero. Which brings us. The number for this past fiscal year is almost quadruple the five past years added up. And that's because we need to be paying attention to who the heck is coming in here and what their intentions are. Let me me interrupt you really quick, Griff. Let me interrupt you really quick, Griff. Talking to Griff Jenkins of Fox News, who's been covering uh, the border for years. This brings us to why this is happening. Let's take a, uh, a look back at some of your own reporting. You in front of the Naval Observatory, Washington, D.C., the vice president's residence, having a conversation with those who were dropped off right there at the vice president's home. Have a contact uh, in New York. Do you have someone to contact? Yes, I have someone to contact. My family here. Okay. And lastly, uh, do you believe that President Biden has made it possible for you to come here? And what would you like to say to President Biden? I, I, my gratitude to the president and all the members of the government. That's all. Okay. Thank you, Vizier. Thank you. Your conversation with him was that he goes invited into the United States. They, the administration keeps telling us that they keep saying the border is closed, but the proof is in the pudding, and your numbers prove it. Uh, the world thinks that this border is open. Has there been any change to that mentality? No change whatsoever, and you're spot on, Tony Katz. Spot on, because what people who have been, uh, you know, border patrol agents have been doing this for 20, 30 years, their entire adult life, they will all tell you the exact same thing. And that is, there's two reasons that migrants come. One is a push factor, the crime, the poverty in their home countries. The other, more significant, is the pull factor, meaning is the administration in the U.S. Uh, conducive, inviting to them coming? Have they had friends and family members from their country, albeit Honduras or Venezuela or Cuba or Colombia or Nicaragua, had they had people go ahead of them and succeed to get through? Because ultimately, if they go through this treacherous journey, survive and make it and pay all their life savings to the cartels, if they get to where they're going, in the case of that Venezuelan man to his aunt in New York, then they've succeeded. And the success record for the migrants has never been better in history. And that's why they keep coming in record numbers, because the administration has made it a wide open opportunity for them to come with no fear of being sent back. And the other number that I broke this week, just to point out, is 865. That's the number of migrant deaths. The administration doesn't want to tell you that. Uh, the source from CBP that gave it to me wants it out there because it illustrates, Tony, that while this administration says they want to be the most compassionate with migrants in immigration in history, they're actually making it the most dangerous because they've never seen a number of that level. But migrants yet are, of course, drowning and being killed and God knows what else. I even this time last year in October, I was in the Darien Gap in Panama, the most dangerous jungle crossing on the planet. I went down there exactly one year ago in October to point out the dangers that they were having. And even then, the 
those uh, uh, Central and South American countries were asking the administration to do something to stop the migrants from putting themselves in that situation. What's happened in the year since? It's only exploded. Talking to Griff Jenkins of Fox News, and you can also follow him on the Twitter box. You should not be afraid uh, to do so. G-R-I-F-F, Griff Jenkins, on Twitter. We take a look at crime being a driver in this election. We're two weeks away from uh, Election Day. Uh, Charles Lipson with the commentary over at Real Clear Politics. Violent crime is driving a red wave. We went from red wave to red ripple to red tsunami, as Axios reported it the other day. To what extent are you seeing people connect the border to the concept of crime, or do they keep those things in in terms of the election separate? Are they separate issues? Well, that's a great question. And the answer is that the two belong together because it is ultimately a security issue and the number of criminal migrants apprehended at our border is also unprecedented. And in fact, if you go on that Twitter, uh, and don't be afraid of the Twitter, as you say, Tony, and you follow the Border Patrol chiefs in Del Rio, in the Rio Grande Valley, RGV, they are constantly posting the, the migrants who have been apprehended and have outstanding warrants for uh, everything from murder to sexual uh, assault to child uh, sex offenders, and the list goes on, and it's, it's every single day. And so, you know, while crime has certainly become a big issue, as we saw in the Pennsylvania debate, in the New York gubernatorial debate, uh, in, in the videos that are posting out there and going viral every day of, 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 you know, people being attacked on the subway and people going crazy in convenience stores, there's also the threat of what's coming across this border. And that's why every official that's working that border from Texas DPS to the Border Patrol agents, which, by the way, the administration won't allow to speak freely to the press, something that should be noted. Uh, They will all tell you, uh, 100% of them will say that we have a a security issue with regards to criminal migrants coming across. And, And, you know, they don't want to say that. It's like you can't, it's like politically correct, Tony, that you can't point out the fact that not everyone that crosses our border are desperate uh, people seeking asylum from a tragic uh, reality back in their home countries. Many are, and we should have compassion for them. They're human beings, but a lot of them aren't, and we shouldn't loop them in uh, together if they're criminals. Does Border Patrol see this um, problem being alleviated anytime soon? Absolutely not, and that's the sad part. There is no signs of these numbers slowing down whatsoever, and in just the first 26 days of October, which is the new fiscal year, fiscal years begin October 1 to October 1, we are already racing off to being a, a off-the-charts off the month in October compared to even last year because you've got, in the case of where I was in Eagle Pass, 1,500 to 2,000 a day. Over in El Paso, 1,500 to 2,000 a day. It's not showing any signs, even the slightest signs of slowing down anytime soon. Griff Jenkins, Fox News. Catch him weekends there in the afternoons. His show, catch him throughout the week all over the Fox News channel. Griff Jenkins on Twitter. Uh, Stay safe. I appreciate you. We'll talk soon. We've got more to get to. I'm Tony Katz.
And how can a man, you know, with with you know ten gigantic mansions, you know, has uh, am willing to talk about a, a willing wage for anybody? Imagine a signal mom trying with two children, trying to race with them, realizing making thirty one thousand. That was John Fetterman, part of John Fetterman, the Democratic Senate candidate from Pennsylvania. You know, I I find myself, as I watched that debate last night, just stunned that this was allowed to happen. We allowed, the Democratic Party allowed, his family and friends allowed him to take a debate stage. It's clear to the rational mind that John Fetterman is not okay. We've only been saying so for months. He had a stroke in May debating Dr. Oz, Mehmet Oz, the Republican candidate for Senate in Pennsylvania. Me, I'm Tony Katz. Tony Katz today. It's good to be with you. To have watched that, that that horror show was something else, and it says much about where America is, where the where the parties are. But there's some other things that took place over the last 24 hours that are equally shocking and stunning. They're just not getting the play. Noah Rothman joins us right now of Commentary Magazine, Commentary.org. He is also the author of The Rise of the New Puritans. Find that at Amazon.com or wherever fine books are sold. And before we get to this letter about the war in Ukraine, uh, you, uh, in, in your podcast over there, Commentary, I believe the headline was, or, or the title was, What Did We Just watch so noah what did you watch last night i watched a abusive enraging voyeuristic spectacle in which a person who is in desperate distress was propped up before the country to serve as an instrument of political utility for a party that needs him Um, No concern shown whatsoever to the man's condition, to his family. Indeed, his family seemed pretty on board with the maltreatment, the mishandling of this recovery. There's a lot of people who think they're making very clever arguments, um, who need to paper over what everybody with a scintilla of human empathy experiences. When they say, oh, you know, John Fetterman's stroke is something that people can relate to. It's empowering. It's inspiring. It's something everybody has experience with. And they're going to find his struggles and his efforts to overcome them inspiring. People with actual experience with people who have suffered a debilitating stroke like this and know that it takes years and years of therapy and treatment to overcome these cognitive deficiencies that you experience do have this experience, do know what it's like. And do understand that the mishandling of this person's recovery process for the benefit of something so parochial and so so trite as a Senate seat for a political party is a disgusting, abusive practice. And everybody who's a party to this and who forced us to watch this last night should be ashamed of themselves. Well, let's take a look. This is Bob Casey, the Democratic senator uh, from Pennsylvania, uh, speaking about this debate. I think that message came through very clearly. I think his answers were, were very direct. I think there's some real question on the other side about a number of answers where there didn't seem to be a yes or no. But I think John did very well, and I think he, he understands uh, how people struggle. He understands what working families are up against every day, and I think that came, came through throughout the debate. 
Do you think that came through throughout the debate, that John Fetterman made a strong case on any subject? No. He didn't make a strong case on any subject. He couldn't complete a sentence. There was no 10-second consecutive moment where he sounded coherent. Maybe if there's a three-second moment where he sounded coherent, you can throw that on the morning news shows. But the thing that's going on in national discourse now is everybody knows what the socially desirable response is. Everybody knows that you're supposed to say, oh, empowering, inspiring. He has the right views on women's rights and infrastructure and working families and all that nonsense. But all this does is force the real conversation about this underground. It's not like anybody is going to stop saying and expressing what their actual experiences and sentiments are around this. They're just not going to do it within earshot of you because they know you are trying to police the discourse. And you have spent the last two months trying to explain why this isn't happening. Don't believe your eyes, your ears, or NBC News reporters who describe their experience to you accurately. They didn't bother to explain why this isn't a big deal, why you shouldn't worry about this, why his recovery is on pace, why this is a normal process, why you should subordinate your concerns about his health to other conditions. They bypassed that and instead started throwing brushback pitches at you, just trying to scare you away from vocalizing the observation that all of us comes to. And that's the conversations are still being had. They're just being had underground. They're not being had in front of you and in ways that you can't counter the observations that everybody's going to take away from this, which is that John Fetterman is not capable of serving in the U.S. Senate. You bring up... Um, That's a killer. And if you're a Democrat, you should be welcoming these conversations so you could defuse maybe some of the unwanted conclusions that voters are obviously drawing today. They didn't do that. They thought they could sanitize the landscape on Twitter by emotionally blackmailing you out of your uh, own conclusions. And they can't. It's just that they don't have now any way to have any input in that conversation and maybe allay some of your very legitimate concerns. They've ceded that territory entirely. Well, one of the things they did, talking to Noah Rothman, commentary.org, his book, The Rise of the New Puritans, Fighting Back Against Progressives' War on Fun, available at Amazon.com, wherever fine books are sold. Uh, You you mentioned an NBC journalist, it was Dasha Burns, who said we had this one-on-one interview with with John Fetterman a couple weeks ago, and he could not engage in conversation. He could not respond to basic questions in the small talk. And it was journalists like Kara Swisher who said this was nonsense. He was fine with me in our conversation maybe this reporter is just bad at small talk the women from the view in the main did the same uh, I- I- exact thing this cover-up that we saw this constant cover-up it's hard to cover up what took place last night yet you can go to your social media feeds and uh noah i am pretty sure at this stage you've been called an ableist a million times mm-hmm. for noting like i've noted like rational people have noted john fetterman's not okay which is a weird thing to try and deny the voters the right to say. I mean, I don't know how much power they think they have. Like, maybe there's a distorting influence here, because if something doesn't happen on Twitter, they don't think it doesn't ha- happens at all. Like, the Associated Press wrote up the, the, the mean tweets around Dasha Burns' report. Like, it was a national story, criticism of NBC News reporters. Observations, just relating her observations. It's literally the job description. Um, yeah, it was, an, it was an effort to silence people and to pretend as though these concerns don't exist because they're no longer in eyesight. Um, and it's, just, it's a truly debilitating thing. Now, I don't know necessarily if this is the end of John Fetterman's campaign. Intellectually, I find it difficult to square 
the proposition that John Fetterman loses with the idea that the top of the ticket in Pennsylvania, the gubernatorial race, is going to go Democratic by almost 10 points. Very, very few polls suggest that race is even remotely competitive. Doug Mastriano is a fatally flawed candidate. And if there's not a lot of ticket splitting, John Fetterman maybe crosses over the line. But I also find it hard to square my intellectual uh, I, uh, um, failure to comprehend John Fetterman losing with my emotional instinct that there's absolutely no way he can win at this point. I, I wouldn't be surprised by any any outcome, but it requires a lot of ticket splitting. Voters are going to have to be very discerning when they go into the ballot box in Pennsylvania in, in a week and a half. Um, and, you know, it sort of flies in the face of what we understand to be the partisan pressures that this environment uh, our political environment currently is typified by negative partisanship, a hatred of the other guy, a fear of the other guy drives votes. It doesn't matter. And and by the way, both of these candidates uh, on the state debate stage last night, including Mehmet Oz, advertised themselves this way. Mehmet Oz says, I'm going to vote for whoever the Republican Party puts up in 2024. I'm going to vote however the party votes. Right. John Fetterman, likewise, he's going to be a robot that just pushes a button that is a lot that is dictated to him, terms dictated to him by the party. So these are just just party apparatchiks, either one. And in that case, Fetterman still has an absolute chance to win just by virtue of the partisan advantage Democrats enjoy in Pennsylvania. But Let's, if there's an ounce of humanity ahead, no, applied to this race, I don't see how John Fetterman recovers from this debacle of a performance. And everybody around him should be absolutely ashamed of how they're abusing this person for something so trite and silly as a Senate seat as control of the U.S. Senate for half a term. It's really just sad. Uh, you and I are not in disagreement on that. Let's change over to something you wrote about at commentary.org. Progressives are just bad at this. It's a story I've been following and trying to, to make sense of, where you had Kevin McCarthy discussing the idea of we got to put an end to this Russian invasion of Ukraine. We have to stop participating in, in support of Ukraine. And then you had these House members, the these liberal House members, including uh, right in my backyard, Congressman Andre Carson of Indianapolis, signing this letter telling Biden to shift course in the Ukraine strategy. And then progressives rescinded the letter because it was too much like what the Republicans wanted. And I got to tell you, at that moment, my, my eyes glazed over. I'm like, what am I looking at here? Make sense of this story. And is, is this a McCarthy issue? Is this a progressives issue? What, do you, what is your take? It's extremely strange. Very strange. So, yeah, Kevin McCarthy was sort of speaking, frankly, I don't think, uh, out, out of turn. He wasn't talking about it when he said, you know, his caucus in the majority would maybe have not want to write a blank check to Ukraine because we have all these domestic priorities. It was a campaign message. But it struck me as sort of silly because it would not only pit him against public opinion uh, dramatically in favor of supporting Ukraine's uh, defense, um, but also providing for its uh, you know, civil reconstruction. Uh, that's popular not just with regular voters. It's popular with Republicans by two to one margin in the polls. It's, and it would pit him against it would it would put him on the side of maybe 30 insurrectionary members in his conference against the entire conference in the House and the Senate. It's a dumb idea. It wasn't going anywhere. But he just was talking and he said it. But it gave Democrats an opportunity to leverage this unpopular view that he expressed. And President Biden was out there talking about this and Democrats were out there talking about this. So it was an opening in a year where they don't have a lot of openings. So they made the most of it. And then Democrats burst through the drywall like the Kool-Aid man and say, we have the exact same position 
And a letter that was apparently drafted months ago has been circulating for a while, was not supposed to be released. Jayapal released it. She blamed her staffers afterwards. Uh, this is Pr- Pramila Jayapal, the head of the Progressive Caucus in the House released it, blamed her staffers for it. Her staffers gave off-the-record quotes to reporters saying, no, she wanted it released. All the progressives who signed this thing were apologizing for it, saying the timing was wrong and we don't actually believe this now and things were different in June than they are now. They weren't. Um, So basically, progressives just wasted all our time. But it's not like it's the first time they've wasted all our time. They wasted our time with Build Back Better for a year. They wasted our time with the For the People Act, the House, the H.R. 1 bill that would have been blatantly unconstitutional, but made them feel better about where the courts are going, for example. Supreme Court packing, which the administration had to study, was a progressive idea. Declaring a climate emergency and pairing back uh, federal, domestic, uh, federal programs for domestic energy production amid an energy crunch was their idea. Moratorium for evictions, canceling student loan debt, codifying Roe, all of this stuff is a waste of our time. It went absolutely nowhere. Joe Biden is beholden to these people for some bizarre reason. And it seems the, amount, the preponderance of evidence suggests these people have no idea what they're doing. No idea what they're doing. Leading the Democratic Party into box canyons left and right, and they still follow them. It is inexplicable. So you, you talk about the, uh, the public uh, opinion, I've still got about a minute left, uh, really being in favor of the support of Ukraine in this fight against Russia. Um, how long do you think that lasts? And is that support only uh, financially? Is, do you believe, have you seen anything that shows support in other ways? We hear about uh, rumors of, of U.S. troops that are going to be doing some trainings in, in Ukraine. I don't think anybody's in favor of boots on ground. Yeah, I, I haven't seen any proposal to that effect. Uh, so far, all the trainings occurred in Poland. Um, but, yeah, I haven't seen any poll that suggests anything other than that the support for the Ukrainian cause is wildly popular, regardless of the fluidity of the situation on the battlefield. It was popular in February when Russia was mounting a, uh, an invasion on three separate fronts and looked very set to, to win. It was fluid or it was static. Rather, a public opinion has been static over the course of Ukrainian counter advances. It's been static through Russia's nuclear threats. It's been static through half a dozen developments that should have shaken America's faith if America's faith in this cause was shakable. It does not seem that way to me. There's a very vocal, highly ideological minority on the right that doesn't want American support for this mission to be as static as it is, but it is. There's no poll that suggests otherwise. And even if the polls are off by 20 points, it's still popular. And they're not off by 20 points. So this is a weird quixotic fixation on the part of a very highly ideological minority of Republicans that Kevin McCarthy stupidly gave oxygen to. Stupidly. It was a dumb move. And Democrats were making the most out of it. And then progressives swoop in and do the exact same thing, neutralizing, by the way, the attack on Republicans, because now we have approximately the same minority on both sides, about 30 members, who are discomfited by the prospect of Russia losing this war. Noah Rothman, the book, The Rise of the New Puritans, Fighting Back Against Progressives' War on Fun. Find that at Amazon.com, wherever fine books are sold. And uh, check out his podcast and his work uh, over there at Commentary.org. Noah, always a pleasure. More is coming your way. I'm Tony Katz.
Never let the reality stop the media from pushing their narrative. Never, ever, ever, ever. Tony Katz. Tony Katz today. You heard pieces of that debate between Fetterman and Oz in the Pennsylvania Senate debate. You know that it was absolutely horrific for Fetterman on every level. But what is MSNBC talking about with Morning Joe? To the voters in Pennsylvania about abortion, what did you find? Joe, Dr. Oz's answer was basically exactly what those voters would not want to hear, especially women who are sitting on the fence and they said they weren't going to be single issue voters on abortion. But if they felt there was going to be a local board uh, giving women a yes or no yay or nay on their medical choices, I don't think that would go over too well. Let's hear from some of those voters now, and I think it'll just be illustrative to give you a sense of how voters are dealing with this complicated issue. And these are groups that we conducted prior to the debate. If you think abortion is a mover in any uh, of these elections, you're out of your head. Five to eight percent at the most in multiple polls. You didn't like an answer Dr. Oz gave in the debate? Oh, that's fine. Every answer John Fetterman gave was incomprehensible. That's the story. But don't let that stop MSNBC from still pushing the idea that abortion is a front and center subject. Holy cow, the people of Pennsylvania might actually vote for a guy who can't understand the question being asked of him. That's, man, we, we do, we, we live in the upside down. We do, this is nuts. This is, there, there is no way to comprehend this. No way to see this as rational, to see these people as normal. Abortion you're talking about? You, did you just see what John Fetterman can't do? You're talking about abortion. It's like Alan Iverson, practice. You're talking about practice. You're talking about abortion? Good Lord. Find everything. TonyCats.locals.com. TonyCats.locals.com. Tomorrow, everyone, take care.